0: Absolutely love meatloaf. I had it at this restaurant called the Marshall in New York City, and I had ordered this meatloaf Reuben, and I sat there. And it was such a visceral memory for me that I started crying as I was eating the sandwich.
1: I knew you were going to say that. Isn't it funny how food can just transform? It's like music. Mm -hmm. When you hear a song, it takes you back to a place in time. Yes. And I think food does the same thing. The smells and the taste, they transport you back to wherever that memory is embedded. Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes, I'm Marty Duncan. On this podcast, we celebrate not just good food, which is so much a part of all of our lives, but also the people and the stories behind that food. And my guest today has really lived the life. Whether you followed her on her Top Chef journey or tuned in to watch her every day on The Chew, former model turned chef Carla Hall has won our hearts with her quirky style, her southern twang, and her fearless enthusiasm.
0: I'm Carla Hall.
1: And I'm Jacques Pepin. And today, we're Carla and Jacques. That's it. Let's cook. (laughs) (laughs) Let's cook. Carla's motto, always cook with love, makes her our perfect guest. Welcome to Homemade, Carla Hall. Marty, it's so good to hear your voice. Your voice is like a warm blanket, I have to tell you. It is. Oh, gosh. I don't know. Sometimes I hear myself and I'm like, oh, girl, you have got to do something. But you know, the weirdest thing is, Carlos. if I talk to somebody with a different accent, I pick up that accent. I do too. Do you really? I I do. People say it's good. Like you're showing empathy by kind of, and I feel like I'm insulting them by saying, oh, really? And then what did you do? Right, right, right. It's like... Oh, you do? Really? Like... Like, I saw your interview with Jack Papin, and I, you know, I catch myself like, I would have been talking just like him. Like, I would have said, and then I put in the, I take a little bit of God and. But oh my god, he's so charming and y'all were so cute together. I love Jacques Pepin. He is amazing.
0: I don't know if people realize this about me, but I love hands. I love watching people's hands. And when I'm clicking with Jacques Pepin and the way his hands like that muscle memory in his hands whatever he's clicking is
1: fascinating to me. You know, especially somebody who has a trade like we do or like a carpenter or somebody who has the skill that their hands just sort of know what to do. Yes, that's pretty fascinating. You know, we have a lot in common besides our Southern accents and being Southern girls. I don't know if you realize this about us. You're born in Nashville, one of my favorite cities on the planet. Love, love, love me some Nashville. We both had a former profession before we became known for our cooking. Mm -hmm. What were you doing? I was a police officer. Wait, did I know that? Probably not. (laughs) But I was. Hi. That was a long time ago, and I was in the wedding industry for many, many, many years. But you were a former model. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. We're going to dig into that in a little bit. We were both on a competition cooking show. You on Top Chef, me on Food Network Star. Yes. And I think the most important thing of all, we both make a pretty badass biscuit. Oh my God, that's the main thing, isn't it? Yes. Before we talk about past lives and all these fascinating things, let's talk about biscuits. So Carla, you're sort of the biscuit queen. I'm the biscuit boss. My maiden name is Boss Heart. (laughs) And my daddy and mama used to make biscuits at the church. When they retired, they moved out to the country and they go on Wednesday nights and make the biscuits for church supper. And when my mama passed away, one of the ladies came up to me and she said, Now, Marty, I hope you'll make your daddy still come up here to the church on Wednesdays because we can't make our biscuits without our biscuit balls. I love that. So you're the biscuit queen. You're making biscuits all over the world. I was making biscuits
0: in New York, like biscuits with strangers, because I couldn't find a good biscuit in New York. So I would go up to people and say, do you know how to make biscuits? These are strangers. 99.9% of the time they were like, no. I'm like, do you want to make some biscuits? I would go to their house (laughs) and I would teach them how to make biscuits. I love this. Right? And mainly because if you don't know how to cook a biscuit, at least you should know how to recognize a good biscuit because people will send you to a place for a quote-unquote good biscuit, and as a Southerner, it is not a good
1: biscuit. right? not even a biscuit sometimes. Right. Sometimes it's a roll. I'm like... It's not a biscuit. <laughs> or a scone. Yes. It was really fun. And
0: then it became this thing of, instead of breaking bread with people, it was about making bread with people because <gasps> just the camaraderie and the community of actually cooking with people like we used to do in the back in the day.
1: I mean, that just melts my heart. You're singing all the right notes right there. I think the world needs more of that. Yeah. Doesn't it? Especially now in this crazy time of pandemic. But okay, so let's dive into the biscuit recipe. I know you got a granny that was amazing cook, Freddie May, right? Yes, Freddie May Glover. Okay, Mm -hmm. so is this Freddie May's recipe, or somebody else's, or yours, or combination? It's a combination. It was taken from Freddie. May, granny. And then when
0: I was in London, I grabbed a scone recipe and tweaked it because it was heavier without buttermilk. And then I've just been tweaking it over the years. It's more my Granny's than anything else. And I've
1: changed the method. The recipe itself is fine. I changed the method to make it more consistent. I had to change my mama's just a little bit too. The thing I changed about my mother's biscuit recipe is that my mother didn't laminate it, you know, or fold it over and over and over. She basically got it all pulled together, folded it over once and then roll that sucker her out and cut it out and throw it in the pan and, you know, she had four kids. She didn't have time to fool with. But I figured out that, although most people say you don't touch a biscuit dough very much, I found out that if you kind of laminate it almost like puff pastry or croissant, you get a flaky layers. You do? Yeah. That's what I started doing. Me too. I laminate my dough and
0: that's because when the butter is cold, it has water in it. So when you do those layers, so now you have, depending on how many turns, you may have nine layers. I do three turns and then that cold butter creates steam and then that creates the layers and the tall biscuit. It is delicious. The other thing that I do for consistency is I grate my butter. I do too. Right? Oh
1: my God, Barty. We are soulmates. Why aren't we making biscuits right now? I know. Oh girl, let's do a big biscuit party. Come on. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Let's find a place and do one. I mean, we even have, what time is it? It's biscuit time. What time is
0: It's It's biscuit time. Time is it. It's biscuit time. It's biscuit time. That's what's up. I'm ready. I'm so ready. Morning biscuits, I like them plain. I like buttermilk. And if I don't have buttermilk, I do half sour cream, half milk. And that gives me that texture and that little bit of sourness, that tang. But I also like putting things in. So herbs, lemon zest. If I'm going to use the biscuit as a topping, sort of like dumplings with chicken, I will do lemon zest and herbs and plop them on top with the broth. Oh, nice. If I'm going to do some kind of savory sandwich, if I just want the biscuit to stand alone that I'm having with the salad, I might throw in like some fennel and some black pepper and something like that. That sounds yummy. And then I do
1: what I call my
0: angel biscuits, which is a yeasty biscuit. I cut out the center and put egg
1: salad. So it's almost like a sandwich with the egg salad. Sometimes, this is a top secret. I don't know why I'm sharing this. Sometimes. Please share. Just... Just me and you, not the $60 all recipes people, just the two of us. I had a friend whose mama made what she called bottle cap biscuits. And she would take a bottle cap, like a Coca-Cola cap, and she'd cut out in the middle of the biscuit and then she'd put in maybe maple syrup or she'd put in jam or jelly and then she'd bake the thing. So sometimes I do that and that is so good. And then I thought, well, why couldn't I make that hole a little bit bigger and just put an egg in there and cook it? So sometimes I do that too. What? Yes. Like a toad in the hole? Oh, okay. I'm getting chills right now. Okay. All right. So sometimes I make the bottle cap biscuits and I shove in like cream cheese or like an orange cream Can you see that little yes. hole in the top? But what's the glaze on that biscuit? Oh, like a sugary, orangey glaze. Like I put orange juice and convection or sugar and dunk it in there. Let me find out that's a creamsicle biscuit. It is. It is exactly what it is. It's a creamsicle biscuit. And then, of course, you know, I also use my biscuit dough to make cinnamon rolls. Yes, yes. And they are the best cinnamon rolls because you don't have that hard outside. Because when I get a cinnamon roll, I got to get past the hard outside to get to the really nice stuff in the middle. Yes, that gooey, yes, the last part that you eat. I don't like the outer ring, but with the biscuit cinnamon roll, you get all soft, yummy deliciousness. Okay, let's talk about rolls for a second. Let's do. Yeast rolls. You mentioned that I was modeling. And speaking
0: of cinnamon rolls, one of my favorite French pastries is the pan au raisin. (gasps) Me too. Right? That like cinnamon roll with custard inside and raisins. The one thing that I tried to make was using my yeast dough with plumped up raisins and a custard and rolling it. And then cutting it so that without the hard edge, you have that softness of that roll with the
1: custard and the raisins, baby! You had me at custard. I just gotta say, you had me at custard. (laughs) Oh gosh. We'll have more with Chef Carla Hall right after the break.
0: Wherever you get your podcasts, you can also find us online at southernliving.com/slash-biscuits-and-jam.
1: Welcome back to Homemade. I'm talking with Chef Carla Hall. Listen, I have so many questions I want to ask you. And a lot of these, like, we think we know you. We saw you for what, 1,500 episodes on The Chew (laughs) every day. We miss you, Carla Hall. That was the dream job. I don't know. That modeling job all around Europe seemed like the dream job of all time. Paris, Milan, London, that seemed like the dream. And then you're on The Chew. I know. I mean, God has shown his light on you. I accept, and it's amazing. Sometimes from the outside things look more
0: glamorous than they are So as a model, you know, when you are running around trying to find work and not eating because they're like, uh, I mean, I always ate, but, (laughs) but you have to maintain your figure and you go to a ghost and There are all of these girls who look amazing. But it was fun. It was a part of my self-discovery and discovering food.
1: And part of your food career. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. You're wandering around all these amazing food cities and suddenly you decide, hmm, maybe I want to explore cooking.
0: There was some overlap. There was a woman named Elaine Evans who was from Tennessee and she was living in France and she was living in Paris and she would get the models together every Sunday to have a Sunday brunch How lovely. It was so nice because it was grounding because here we are, most of us Americans and not with our families. And she would pull us together and it was just something so amazing and grounding. So it felt like home and my grandmother going to her Sunday suppers and all of the socialization that took place in the kitchen. And I'm watching people cook it. I'm like, oh, this is what happens in the kitchen. You know, uh, I'm usually outside. I'll come in when the door, when the dinner bell rings. And so everyone was cooking and they were like, well, my mother does it like this or my mother does it like that. And I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea what was happening in the kitchen. And I started buying cookbooks. And that was really the beginning of my interest in food. And then when I came back to the States after the modeling was over... I started a lunch delivery service as a fluke after a friend couldn't come to my sister's baby shower where I was making the food.
1: I read that, that you brought sandwiches.
0: I did smoked turkey. I did quiche at the time. I did biscuits with smoked turkey as well. Nice. I remember doing chess pie because I was trying to recreate everything that my friend couldn't have at the baby shower. And I just put it into a basket. And when I got there, she said, my friend has a business. And I was like, what? And they were like, what's the name of it? And I was holding a picnic basket because that's what I put all the food in. I looked down at the basket. I looked up at them and I said, the lunch basket. Oh, how funny. <laughs> and they were like, when are you
1: coming back? I'm like, tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And get your checkbook ready. Yeah. That is awesome. That is so awesome. All right. Your greatest influence in the kitchen outside of Freddie May. I'm guessing that's your biggest influence. But your biggest influence in the kitchen?
0: I think Shirley Corher, wise. Cookwise, I love her books because not only is Shirley from the South, but she's a food scientist. So the science of things and why things work. And even though I love it, I sing Lucy Goosey. I love order. And I love process. I mean, I love well, that. That's interesting. And it doesn't necessarily come across, but when you know that I was an accountant, you know that there's a part of me that loves puzzles and the way things fit and why they fit. I don't really talk about it a lot, but I think that way. And I got to meet her for the first time last year, and I have been using her books for years. And when I was catering, I used her cook-wise, and not necessarily the recipes, but the why. And I incorporated that into my recipes. And I remember sending her a note saying, thank you for getting me through a really busy catering season. And a couple months later, she sent a note back and I was like, oh my God, Shirley Corher!" So I met her for the first time. I love her. I'll have to find the pictures. I absolutely love her and adore her. So I would say it's her.
1: Who would you most like to cook for?
0: Oh, um... Because I know you cook for a lot of people already. I have. I have, including the Obamas. But you know who I would like to cook with? And this sounds very cliche, but because her dad lives in Nashville and because she has Nashville roots, Oprah Winfrey, because she gets my food.
1: That's mine too. Uh, That's at my top of my list. This doesn't sound cliche at all. You know why for me? Because she has had every great Southern cook in the world cook for her. And I want to see how my food stacks up to all theirs, like Art Smith and everybody else. Yes. Yeah. Let's go together. I'll go with you. I'll be here
0: soon. Let's go together. One of my comfort meals is collard greens or mixed greens and cornbread and maybe some beans. And that's the thing that I make when I'm homesick in New York because I just want to feel a piece of home. And I saw a video of Oprah making her cornbread and collards. And I was like, girl, why have we not cooked together? I would just love that. I would absolutely love that.
1: Me too. I did the Oprah show a lot of times back in the 90s because I was based in Chicago and they would do a lot of wedding episodes. So I did a lot before I even thought about cooking for a job. So I've always wanted to cook for Oprah because I thought, girl, I could show you a few tricks. The other person that I would love to cook with is Patty LaBelle because she can throw down. Yes, she can. Come on. Miss Patty. Miss Patty. <laughs> I know. I love that, Miss Patty. Oh my gosh. Well, so when you're cooking up a big pot of turkey, of greens or collard greens or mixed greens, walk us through that process. What's that look like? Okay, the first thing that
0: I do is think about the pot liquor. Back in the day, when my grandmother was cooking, she would throw everything in there and then let the greens cook down. But I want to focus on the pot liquor first, and my greens are actually vegetarian, so lots of onions. I slice or dice the onions. Sometimes I slice them, and they just melt away. Onions, garlic, chili flakes, vinegar, and of course a lot of oil because I'm not using meat, and that is the flavor carrier. Right. So then I use smoked paprika. That's a good tip. Yeah, and then I use water. So I have a, probably about two to three cups of pot liquor, liquid, and
1: when that is delicious and tasty, then I add in my greens. That's so backwards the way the old school cooks do it, but that's so smart because you're right. The pot liquor, for those of you who don't know what that is, that is the liquid in the pot you cook the greens in or used to be what was the residual effect of cooking. Exactly, right. But you're doing it reverse. You're getting your pot liquor where you want it, taste-wise, flavor-wise. Then you add your grains and cook them. Yep. And you, I'm assuming you don't cook them to death like our old mamas and grandmamas did. I don't. And let me tell you why I don't have
0: to, because I also chiffonade my grains and I don't wash them first. I stack them up like about six or seven grains. I roll them. I then cut them lengthwise of the roll. And then I slice them really thin, and then taking at least one or two inches of the stems, even thinner, because that's going to be the texture for my greens. And then I put that into the water. And so I clean them. You don't even have to spin them dry. I let all the dirt settle. And then I take those greens, shake, 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 and put them into the pot liquor. And then as that pot liquor is cooking, I just take my batches and put them right into the pot
1: liquor, And I just keep going like that. Oh, that's so interesting. It's about a bunch per person because greens really cook down. They do. They surely do. Mm. And when people see me going through the grocery store, the whole cart full of greens, they're like, you must be cooking for an army. I'm like, these won't make much. If they're good, right? You want to have them. So we're sheltering in
0: place. And my mom was talking to me. I had an event in Nashville for the Nashville food and wine. And I had greens and hot water cornbread. And I had a whole bunch. I mean, I just didn't want to run out of greens. So I was giving people like quarts of greens. And so my mom took a couple of quarts home. And just the other day, she said, Carla, I've eaten these greens from when you were at the show. And I was like, oh, that's so amazing. And they freeze so well. They do? They do. Wow. They do. They freeze really well. That's
1: good to know. So after you cook them, you freeze them in liquid. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, nice. So we've talked about your granny, Freddie Mae. Was your mom a good cook too? No.
0: That's a quick conversation.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I figured not because you said you didn't have much of a clue about some of the stuff going on in the kitchen. I figured it was your granny that was the cook and your mama just...
0: I mean, my mother went to boarding school. So from fourth grade to 11th grade, she was in boarding school in Camden, Alabama. And even though I say that my mom doesn't cook, but my mother makes certain things. You know, like back in the day, I grew up in the 60s. So there were five things that she made. A pot roast, a meatloaf. She would make a lot of hamburger helper. I love hamburger helper. Just don't diss the hamburger helper. I love the hamburger helper. Okay. I have a recipe in my book called Hamburger Help Me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, my, it's my mother. I said my mama's hamburger. Help me. But I love meatloaf because of my mom. Me too. I absolutely love meatloaf. I had it at this restaurant called The Marshall in New York City and I had ordered this meatloaf Reuben, and I sat there, and it was such a visceral memory for me that I started crying as I was eating the sandwich.
1: I knew you were going to say that. Isn't it funny how food can just transform? It's like music. Mm -hmm. When you hear a song, it takes you back to a place in time, Yes, and I think food does the same thing. Mm -hmm. The smells and the taste, they transport you back to wherever that memory is embedded. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a gift. It really is. For Christmas, I went over to my cousin's house I lost my mother 16 years ago. And this was my first Christmas without my daddy. Mm. So it was a tough one, but my cousin invited me over and um, we had brunch and she said, listen, I want to give you something. And she had found my mother's meatloaf recipe in my mama's <gasps> handwriting and on stationery with our old address where I grew up. And she says, I want you to have that.
0: Okay, what I'm hoping that you're going to do with that, Marty, is send it somewhere, blow it up,
1: and put it on a canvas. I am. I'm going to put it in my...
0: Or uh, you can put it on a tea towel. You can actually put it on different things. I've
1: seen people do that. I was going to frame it, Matt, and I've got a place in my... I'm redoing my mama's kitchen. Yeah, I'm going to definitely do that. When I was a kid, though, I did not eat the meatloaf. My mother would make me a hamburger patty, and put it on the side, I would not eat the meatloaf. I don't know why. But when I got a little older, of course I did when I was a teenager. But when I was a really young kid at our first home, I never ate the meatloaf. Now that was dumb. I was thinking about this the other day and I was thinking about meatloaf, but I was doing
0: some Vietnamese inspired lettuce wraps. And I said that, I mean, sometimes it takes so long to make a meatloaf. I mean, it's at least an hour. So I think what I'm going to do the next time that I want to do a meatloaf is take all of my flavor, all of the vegetables and everything that I put inside it, and I'm going to cook it in a pan like minced meat and do lettuce wraps with my meatloaf. What
1: a great idea. I think that is a great idea. And that way you can use it for catering and stuff too and parties. Yes. Because it's hard to make a meatloaf for a party, you know? It's a plated thing. That makes it like a portable little transportable bite. How exciting. Yes. Oh, what a good idea. Now, your mom's meatloaf, was it like a traditional meatloaf? Or it was kind of keep those same flavors in yours, or
0: yes, definitely. So the Worcestershire sauce and the onions and everything. The only thing that I do differently is I do like the mirepoix. So I take the onions, the celery, the carrots, and I blend it up. I use oatmeal just like she did. Your mommy used oatmeal, yeah, yeah. She used oatmeal.
1: My mommy used white bread, of course, and kind of toasted it and made breadcrumbs out of that. And sometimes she didn't, she'd just tear up the white bread and throw it in there. I'd never heard of it with oatmeal. Tell me. I grind up the oatmeal. I put
0: the milk that I'm going to put in. I let the oatmeal sit in the milk with all the spices. So, the cayenne pepper and salt and black pepper, cumin, all of that. She didn't put cumin in hers. And then that goes into my mix. And I mix my egg in that. Right. So, I have this egg, milk, oatmeal mixture with the spices. And then I have my vegetables and all that goes into the meat mixture.
1: Do you put yours in a pan or you freeform it on a sheet pan or how do you do yours? Freeform. Yeah, I think most people are doing that. Now nowadays. My mother had a meatloaf pan. So I tend to use that. I still have it. I love it. I use that meatloaf pan. I don't even know how to make it without it. I don't think, you know, it's weird. I'm sure you have your prize kitchen possessions too. I've got my mama's skillet and her rolling pin and I don't know how to cook them if I don't have those things. Speaking of prize possessions, I had my
0: grandmother's cast iron skillet. How wonderful. I remember this like it was yesterday. I was in New York. I was making a dish that Michael Simon had done on the chew, and it was this warm mushroom vinaigrette. So I had sautéed the mushrooms, and I was putting the olive oil and vinegar in the pan, and I was like, where's the liquid going?
1: And the pan cracked. Cracked. Oh, I've heard of that recently. Only in like the last month have I even heard of that ever happening. I wonder why. I think it's because the pan was so hot for the mushrooms. And then I put in the vinegar and not the
0: oil first, right? And I was starving. When I started doing this, I was starving. And I sat there and I looked at the pan. And when I realized what was happening, I was like, no! And I and the tears just flowed because it was almost like I was just losing this thing of my grandmother's. And I can't cook in it anymore. I still have it. But it was so emotional because when you talk about your mother's meatloaf pan and the rolling pan and the connection that we have and what is almost like this talisman of making that dish, right? True.
1: And when you don't have it, you're like, oh my God, can I... Can I still cook? It's like my magic. Right, right. Exactly. Speaking of that, I think you have superpowers. So what is your primary, your best superpower? I really think that my superpower is that
0: I genuinely like people. I really like people. I don't tend to like people. I don't talk to people because I have to because I'm on television. I genuinely like people and I love talking to strangers.
1: I do too. It's weird. Oh, I like talking to anybody really. So tell me what is your favorite recipe to make or your number one recipe? Like if you're going to entertain at home, what, what's your favorite thing to make? Most people ask me about the hot chicken from my restaurant, even though I don't have the
0: restaurant and I only had it for a year and it went away in 2017. They still talk about that. They still talk about my petite cookies that were like little bites.
1: That's one thing I remember about you were those little tiny cookies. I'll tell you another thing, the gumbo, like Emerald thought your gumbo was amazing. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about gumbo because I mean, that's my heart right there. You did gumbo. I think that's I mean, an amazing risk to do gumbo on a competition cooking show because you got to cook that roux. How in the world did you accomplish that? Yeah, that was crazy. That was one of those things you could think too hard about it. So we were in New Orleans, we had
0: 20 minutes to cook. And again, who can cook a gumbo in 20 minutes? I still be thinking about what to get out of the refrigerator for 20 minutes. <laughs> so I think for me, it was all about building flavors and I love making soup. So I had shrimp, I had the shrimp shells, I threw a pot on the back burner to make a broth. I I had my roux going in another pan. I was having my vegetables in another pan. I had three pans going at once. So the timing would have been right. The vegetables, I did the Holy Trinity, the peppers, the onions, and the celery. And then I had thyme in there, bay leaves. And then I had some tomatoes and I just threw everything back in, but really it was getting the most Flavor out of those shrimp heads and shells.
1: I used to make shrimp and grits from my dad a lot. It was his favorite. And sometimes he would stop by the store and he would say, I'm going to get some shrimp. And then he'd come home with this cheap, horrible shrimp. I'm like, Daddy, don't go to the superstore and get shrimp. You got to get the real stuff. It doesn't taste the same. He didn't believe me. So I'm like, Okay, I'm going to make shrimp and grits with your ugly old shrimp. And then I'm going to go get some shrimp. And then I went and got Gulf shrimp and made him the same thing. And I'm like, Okay, let's taste the difference. And he went, oh, wow, these are watery. They don't taste like anything. And these are, you're right, full of flavor. But I think that's a great tip for our listeners. Y'all use the heads and the shells to make your stock and you can freeze that, right, Carla? Yes. Yes. You can absolutely freeze that. I think right now, what
0: I love about what people are doing, they're cooking more and they're trusting themselves more and they're like, oh, I'm a better cook than I thought, but you're a better cook because you practiced. It just
1: takes practice. Yeah, we don't cook like we cook like immediately. I've had a lot of mistakes that I've had to go back and revisit and revisit and revisit and finally kind of get it where I want it. I don't know why people give themselves such a hard time when they don't get it right the first get-go. I want to talk a little bit about your other TV stuff that you're doing right now. I mean, I've seen you judging a lot of stuff, mostly the baking stuff I've noticed, but you've got something new, crazy delicious on Netflix. It's crazy delicious because they took
0: the idea of we see all of this food on Instagram and all these beautiful pictures, but is it delicious? It looks crazy and amazing, but is it delicious? And so the most perfect dish not only looks good, but it tastes good because you can't taste a picture. That's right. So we pushed the boundaries for these contestants. But the most fabulous thing about the show is that they created a garden. It was almost like an Alice in Wonderland, like a Willy Wonka thing. Where you walk in, there is dirt, there are trees. There is a tree with a spigot where you get your maple syrup. There's an olive tree where you get olive oil. How
1: fascinating.
0: It's pretty amazing. And so they set up this entire world. And when you walk in, you can smell the dirt. And I think what I love about the show, and it's a byproduct of the show, just talking about food and cooking, is that a lot of kids don't know what plants their food comes from. So when you actually see somebody going through and and say like the squash is on the ground because it's a gourd and it's growing up from the ground like a watermelon. You go to the ground. When you're going to a pepper bush and you have your pepper or a lemon tree. So it's all of those things. And you're looking at maple syrup and you're like, oh, it's coming out of this tree. That's the sap. So I think it's also educational from that perspective.
1: So your favorite thing to bake, what would it be? I love pies. Me too. I love crust. Me too. I love pies. Me too. Which one would you make? Peach cobbler. Really
0: quickly, the secret to making my peach cobbler. Okay. I take my peaches, I macerate them in the sugar and a little bit of lemon juice, brown sugar, a little bit of almond, and I just let them sit. Then I put them on a sheet pan and let them cook in the oven for passive cooking because, you know... For soul food peach cobbler, those peaches need to be cooked and like dark, right? But with still texture. Then I bake my bottom crust on a sheet pan and I put that baked crust on the bottom and the peaches on top and then a raw dough up top so that when I eat the peach cobbler, that cooked crust is more like a dumpling, but it's not raw dough that's the secret that I do.
1: Yum. I'm going to try that too. That's very different than anything I've ever done. Listen, before we let you go, Carla, you do a lot of charity work and I want to give you a chance to talk about that just a little bit before we go.
0: When I decide to do something for a group, it's usually about kids. It's about Africa. It is about women. So the Pajama Program, which does books and pajamas for kids, but not only that, it gives them a safe hater to feel that safety and the creativity of a good night's sleep. Helen Keller International, they do a lot of work with women, not only eyeglasses, but also micronutrients and all of the diseases that are related to those micronutrients. A lot of work in Africa and Asia. And then the third one is Gen Youth. And I was on Amazon Live with Baker Mayfield from the Browns talking about Gen Youth. And what they're doing right now is really helping these 53 million kids get their school lunches because 30 million kids still depend on these meals from school. It's true. Even though they're not in school. So that is still happening. And with all of the food insecurity that's happening right now, the kids aren't being talked about. It's
1: fairly shocking that in this country, we have so much food insecurity. People don't really realize it, but there are so many... Children and families who depend on the school lunch programs and with the school year being abbreviated like it was, many are not sure where they'll get their next meal. That's right. That's an important program. Thank you for all you do. And I think it just speaks to your heart, to the kind of person that you are, that you spend so much of your time and energy and effort trying to help other people. So thank you for that from all of us. Well, thank
0: you for asking. I can say the same thing for you because when you do have a platform, it's like, how are you going to reach back and help someone else?
1: I think that's what we're all supposed to do. Put a hand out, help the next one up. I think that's what we're supposed to do. Carla, thank you so much for being on our homemade podcast. You have made it so much fun and we can't wait to try some of your tips and secrets. And I'm going to do those collard greens, girl. Well, we have to cook together. This has been so great. And thank you for having
0: me on. I feel like, you know, when you haven't spoken to a friend in a long time and when you speak to them, you're like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I needed. So that's how I feel about talking to you today. So thank you.
1: Bye, girl. Bye. Be sure to check out Carla Hall's new show on Netflix. It's called Crazy Delicious. You can also find her on YouTube, on Instagram at Carla P Hall, and on CarlaHall.com. Up next on Homemade food and culture with my favorite Mexican, Chef Aron Sanchez. They have these wonderful, cool little culture of male supper clubs where all the men get together and they all cook together and drink cider and cook octopus on the grill and they have all these beautiful little traditions up there in the northwest of Spain, which is really cool. Aron's latest book is Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. And we'll be talking about the book his childhood cooking and all those tattoos don't miss it subscribe to the podcast right now and please if you could rate this podcast and leave us a review i'd really appreciate it and don't forget you can find thousands of recipes meal ideas and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com you can also find us on facebook twitter and instagram This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with Executive Editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.